Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, NPR, The Young Turks, and Al Franken. There's a lot of other things in the news. Let's take a look, for example, at what's going on in uh, with the occupation of Iraq right now. I want to know the men in the shadows of. I want to hear somebody asking them why. They can be counted on to tell us who our enemies are. But they're never the ones to fight or to die. This is from Reuters, deadline Baghdad. Two people were killed when a roadside bomb went off near a market in central Baghdad in Suwaira. Iraqi police retrieved the bodies of seven people from the Tigris River on Monday in Suwaira, 40 kilometers south of Baghdad. The bodies were handcuffed, blindfolded, and bore signs of torture. This is something that's been going on ever since death squad John Negroponte went over there. See, always seems to follow him. Of course, now he's head of all of Homeland Security here in the United States. Give you a creepy feeling? Also in Suara, a child was seriously wounded when a bomb planted outside a house exploded on Monday. And, of course, the bodies of two U.S. soldiers found in Iraq Monday night were mutilated and booby-trapped, according to military soldiers or sources. The two men had suffered severe trauma. The bodies had been desecrated. Visual identification was impossible. Part of the reason DNA testing was being done to to, uh, verify their identities. Not only were the bodies booby-trapped, but IEDs, improvised explosive devices, also lined the road leading to the victims. An apparent effort to complicate recovery efforts and target recovery teams, the sources said, took troops 12 hours to clear the area of IEDs. Now, this is, this is truly a tragedy. And it is a tragedy that I think we can lay safely right at the feet of the mindset and the, the, the just general insanity of this administration. To say, no, we are going to be separate from the rest of the world. We're going to behave differently than the rest of the world. We are not going to keep up with the, with the standards of humanity that the United States has traditionally stood for. We're going to... We're going to go beyond that. We're going to say, ah, you know, it's okay. No problem. We can torture people. And then, of course, as soon as they say it, as soon as they do it, then you get the right-wingers going, oh, no, it's not going on. If you're going to tell me there's torture going on, I want to see the torture. I want to see some evidence of the torture. Well, this must be why Riley went down to Git- Gitmo uh, the week that the three guys committed suicide. What, did they see him? Is that what happened? Well, Bill, how about uh, Abu Zubaydah? This is a guy that uh, George Bush once described as, quote, one of the top operatives plotting and planning death and destruction in the United States. Ron Suskind, in his new book, The 1% Doctrine, says the FBI and the CIA, when they took this guy into custody, they determined that he was, quote, mentally ill, and nothing like the pivotal figure they supposed him to be. 
End quote. In fact, the FBI's top al-Qaeda analyst, the number one guy in the FBI about who, who knew about al-Qaeda, said this guy is insane, a certifiable split personality. That's a, a verbatim quote. But Suskind lays out in his book, under, under White House and Justice Department direction, the CIA would make him its first test subject for harsh interrogation techniques. As the Washington Post wrote, Books Bush was fixated on how to get Zubaida to tell us the truth, Suskind writes, and he asked one briefer, do some of these harsh methods really work? Interrogators did their best to find out, Suskind reports. They strapped Abu Z- Zubaida to a waterboard, which re- reproduces the agony of drowning. They threatened him with certain death. They withheld medication. They bombarded him with deafening noise and harsh lights, depriving him of sleep. Under that duress, he began to speak of plots of every variety against shopping malls, banks, supermarkets, water systems, nuclear plants, apartment buildings, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Statue of Liberty. With each new tale, quote, thousands of uniformed men and women raced in a panic to each target, end quote. And so Suskin writes, again quoting from the Washington Post here, the United States would torture a mentally disturbed man and then leap, screaming at every word he uttered. At every word he uttered. And so, you know, well, that's, you know, Raleigh's got to be a tough guy. He says, well, no, if you're going to do this, uh, run the country the way Saddam ran it. That's what you need to do. That's me, President O'Reilly. Curfew in Ramadi, 7 o'clock at night. You're on the street, you're dead. I shoot you right between the eyes. Okay? That's how I run that country, just like Saddam ran it. Yeah, just like Saddam ran it. Indeed. And we wonder why people might be saying, you know, we'd really rather you weren't running our country. I mean, this, this is this is mind boggling. Stephen Miles, medical ethicist, Stephen Miles, he has a new book coming out called Oath Betrayed. Thirty five thousand pages of government documents from the United States government that he got under lawsuit, federal Freedom of Information Act lawsuits. Incredible witness testimony. He documented that the techniques that the Bush administration has used in complete contravention of over 200 years of American history and, and certainly the, the Geneva Conventions and base, the basic laws of civilized society, which might have something to do why, with why other, other societies think that you know, they need not treat us as civilized persons, our strategies, beating, punching with fists, use of truncheons, kicking, slamming against walls, stretching or suspension to tear ligaments or muscles to cause asphyxia, external electric shocks, forcing prisoners to a basin to urinate on themselves, forced renunciation of religion, false confessions or accusations, applying urine and feces to prisoners, making verbal threats to the prisoner and his family, denigration of a prisoner's religion, force feeding, induced hypothermia and exposure to extreme heat, dietary manipulation, use of sedatives, extreme sleep deprivation, mox executions, water immersion, immersion, waterboarding, obstruction of the prisoner's airway, chest compression, thermal burning, rape, dog bites, sexual abuse, forcing a prisoner to watch the torture of a loved one. In the meantime... Zalmay Khalilazad says, uh, things aren't going so well from Iraq. And I'm saying, you know, we need, we really need 
to look back and listen to some of our wise elders and say, wait a minute, we are not setting the example for the world that we once set. In 1964, in 1964, at the Republican National Convention, speaking, the, 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 most, the, the former president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower, standing up and speaking, the last Republican president of the United States, and speaking on behalf of the nomination of Barry Goldwater, said, There is only one real peace now, and that is peace for all time. Peace for all time. Today we are competing for men's hearts and minds and trust all over the world. In such a competition, what we are at home and what we do at home is even more important than what we say abroad. And tragically now we can add what we do abroad as well. Of course, when Eisenhower was saying this, it was right after we helped rebuild Europe. They were looking at us going, hey, that Marshall Plan, that was pretty good. You gave us the money. We put our companies to work. We put our people to work. Uh, People got off the street. There was no unemployment. Not a single soldier was attacked during the brief occupation of of Germany and Japan. Eisenhower continued. Here again, my friends, we find constructive work for each of us. What each of us does, how each of us acts, has an influence on this question and on the entire world eisenhower continued there can be no enduring peace for any nation while other nations suffer privation oppression and a sense of injustice and despair in our modern world it is madness to suppose that there could be an island of tranquility and prosperity in the sea of wretchedness and frustration and yet we go over to Iraq and say, okay, you guys, we're going to rewrite your constitution. You, uh, your uh, Iraqi corporations no longer have first shot at things. Uh, American corporations can come in, buy up everything. They don't have to hire Iraqis. Iraqi trade unions, you're banned. You're out of here. There are, there are no government protection. We're going to create a neocon paradise. The Iraqi healthcare system, forget it. If you can pay for it, you can go. If you can't, you're on your own. Any, any kind of social safety net, we're going to tear the thing apart. We're going to create a neocon paradise. We're going to show you how the conservatives would run the world, and you're going to love it. And the cons actually believed when they went into Iraq. They actually believed that they could create that kind of thing, that they, they could create that kind of world, and people would buy it. That it was actually going to bring about a paradise. This was going to be their experiment. They were going to prove that when Harry Truman rebuilt Japan and Germany, and the first things he did was he put into place strong protections for labor and unions and a national health care system, because as the Marshall Plan was rebuilding Germany and Japan, Harry Truman in 1947 tried, tried to pass. The first, this was the first time that a president of the United States actually submitted a bill for a national health care system, tried to pass a national health care system. And the Republicans had taken control of the House and the Senate in the election of 46, and they said no, they wouldn't allow it. Harry Truman could not get it through, so he said, I'll show you that it works. In fact, they had just passed Taft-Hartley, rolling back union protections. He said, I'll show you what happens when a country has strong union protections, strong labor, and a national health care system. And he helped put that into place in Germany and Japan, and they became two of the industrial, two of the, the most powerful industries, industrial forces in the entire world. And we did it 
saying we are holding ourselves to very high standards. We could have, after World War II, we had a couple of hundred Nazis. We knew these guys were terrible people. We knew they were absolute wretched, criminal, mass-murdering sons of... We knew it. We could prove it. But did we take them out in the back 40 and shoot them? Did we put them in a prison and say, okay, you can stay there forever? Never never see the light of day? No. We said, we're going to give them trials. We're going to give them lawyers. We're going to actually help them prepare their own defenses. And if they don't you know, make it through the trial, then hey, they were, they were actually guilty and they will be held to account. But we're going to hold the trials. And the Nuremberg trials were the example to the world that America fought World War II for the ideals of giving people a fair trial. Not for the ideals of putting people in a concentration camp in Guantanamo Bay for three years and saying, sorry, you can't even talk to a lawyer. Oh, you're feeling a little suicidal? Tough. We would like you to meet a man now who wants to bring torture out of the closet. The noted lawyer and Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz favors rules to permit torture under some conditions. This morning, his voice begins a series of conversations about American interrogations. Alan Dershowitz first spoke of torture shortly after the September 11 attacks. He still favors a system of allowing it, though he insists his view is more nuanced than it might seem. I don't think torture is ever acceptable. Uh, I think that torture will, in fact, be used and has, in fact, been used whenever it is felt that by torturing an obviously guilty suspect in a terrorism context, the lives of uh, multiple innocent people could be saved. The problem is that today torture is being used promiscuously, and we deny we're using it. And I think what we need to do is acknowledge what we're doing and create rules and have visibility and accountability. And that's what we lack today. Wait a minute. You began by saying you didn't think torture was acceptable. But no. you're also saying let's create some rules and that's systems right. by which we can occasionally do it. That's right. And uh, I'm not saying which we'll, we should occasionally do it. I'm saying to govern the fact that we will occasionally do it. My normative views are personally against torture. But empirically, as a student of interrogation, I know it will occur. You've taken a provocative position there. If you were making the rules, what kinds of techniques of torture should be inbounds under some circumstances? Well, again, I don't think anything should be inbounds. But I mean, but you're talking you, about if you're going to put, put together rules, should someone be allowed to pull out fingernails? Should they be able... I mean, what, what should you be allowed to do? That's exactly what has to be debated. It's a very unpleasant debate. We should ask ourselves the question, should we permit waterboarding? We know, for example, that Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, a very high-value detainee, was subjected to waterboarding. That is, he was placed on a board, his head was put into the water, Near-drowning experiences were inflicted on him, but no physical after-effects were experienced. And the United States government takes the position, that's not torture. I disagree. That is torture. So now we have to have a debate. Should waterboarding be permitted? We know that sleep deprivation is used. We know that loud music is played. We know that smelly sacks are put on people's heads, that they're placed in uncomfortable positions. 
In a democracy, we have to debate whether that's torture, whether that should be permitted, under what circumstances. Should we ever be allowed to put a sterilized needle underneath somebody's fingernails to cause excruciating pain but no after effects? Uh, if the uh, need for the evidence is overwhelming, if we think, the President of the United States thinks it's absolutely essential to, to defend the lives of thousands of people, he ought to be on the line. He ought to have to sign a torture warrant in which he says, I'm taking responsibility for breaking the law, for violating treaties, for doing an extraordinary act of necessity. That's a responsibility only the president should be able to take, and only in the most extraordinary situation. Right now, we have the worst of all possible situations. We deny we're using torture. We're using it. Everybody can deny they have any role in it. We can't trace it. So we punish a couple of people at Abu Ghraib for the most absurd use of extreme uh, violence that uh, has ever been done because there they were low visibility, low level people. And we used methods that no democracy should ever use. And everybody says, well, it wasn't my fault. It was some low level dog handler. You've argued that uh, Israelis and others have come up with examples where they feel yeah. that torture worked, got good information. What were the specific techniques that have been used that, in your view, work? I have no view. I'm not an expert on this. I can tell you that I've spoken to many people in the Israeli Secret Service, and they deny, of course, that they use torture, but they claim that putting people in a dark room, putting uh, filthy sacks on their head, putting them in uncomfortable positions, uh, shaking them, uh, having sounds of torture, which are usually recorded and fake, coming from another room so that the person uh, believes he is going to be torturing, threatening worse, making them feel helpless, has produced information that has saved lives, that has prevented buses from blowing up. And to the contrary, they claim that once they were denied the ability to do that, uh, they missed the opportunity to prevent several explosions that killed innocent people. That claim has to be subjected to verification and validation. Nobody should accept any of these stories simply because they're put forward by intelligence agencies. They have to be tested, validated, and verified by experts. wonder what happened to those Palestinians who'd been tortured once they were back out on the streets, once they were released. I don't think you have to wonder. I think they became uh, much, much more hateful of Israel. That's one of the prices you pay, and it's a price that has to be taken into consideration, and it may be why you don't use it. But it's far too easy to say that it never works, it always produces far more harms than benefits. If that were the case, then it wouldn't any more be a moral issue. It would be a simple empirical issue. One side would be right, one side would be wrong. What would it do to the very meaning of the United States if we woke up occasionally and the morning news said the president signed a torture warrant today and we're going to be torturing this guy? It would be much, much better than what we have today, which is the president denies that we do it. Everybody knows that it's authorized from the very top, and everybody knows that it's being widespread. What could hurt the American image more than Abu Ghraib with the president saying we had nothing to do with it? We didn't authorize it. We're punishing the people. Is there anybody in the world who believes that? I think if we became the first country to say, look, we're going to eliminate the way of the hypocrite. We abolish torture. It's against the law. But like anything else, we may have to shoot down a civilian airplane one day that is headed toward the Empire State Building. And if that decision has to be made to kill 300 innocent people, it's not going to be made by some local policeman on the ground. It's going to be made by the President of the United States, if he can be reached, or by the Vice President or the Secretary of Defense. When extraordinary decisions of this kind have to be made, they are made at the very top. And if we ever believe that we ever have to torture somebody to save New York City or to save thousands of people, that decision has to stop at the White House desk. 
You know, as I listen to you, Professor Dershowitz, I'm reminded of Jonathan Swift's famous modest proposal in which he <laughs> called attention to famine in Ireland and the way that people were ignoring it by proposing that the Irish simply eat their babies. He was being satirical, we assume. I'm it not makes being me... satirical. You're serious. I'm serious. I'm proposing a heuristic which I believe will reduce the amount of torture from what is being done in the world today, will make us face up to what we're doing, will make us dirty our hands in this filthy, disgusting business of torture, and I think reduce its um, frequency uh, in the world as, as we know it today, because today we have the worst possible situation. We're doing it, and we're denying it. Alan Dershowitz is author of Preemption, A Knife That Cuts Both Ways, and you can read an excerpt at NPR.org. Our discussions continue tomorrow with a doctor who investigated the medical profession's role in interrogations. We asked about the proposal we just heard. Alan Dershowitz. Yeah. The well-known lawyer. Yeah. Who has argued that... He's wrong. Yet the doctor and Dershowitz agree on one thing. They say the United States is indeed practicing torture. Sent out an SOS call It was a quarter past four in the morning When the storm broke our second anchor line Four months at sea Four months of calm seas To be pounded in the shallows Off the tip of Montauk Point Calm roads, they travel fast and alone. One hundred foot faces of God's good ocean gone wrong. What they call love is a risk. Jill was asking, we're getting back to the military, the Pentagon. Uh, Maybe a really ignorant question, and I'm sorry. It's not an ignorant, it, it's, it's an informed what question. You, go ahead, ask it's the question. An ignorant law. I just don't understand what makes the military different from the rest of society in the way that they can treat homosexual people. I get the don't ask, don't tell thing, but why is that allowed? How did that pass? First of all, they how, treat them better than the rest of society, then, apparently. How is like, if a gay guy who doesn't say anything, tries to keep his lifestyle totally confidential, gets discovered somehow and gets booted from the military? How is that okay? Well, I mean, uh, you mean... How you, is that legal? Well, because the military is permitted, and, and because, you know, the, the laws that govern the, the telecom industry, well, telecom might be a bad example, the laws that, that govern the, the public relations industry are not governed by Congress. I mean, Congress doesn't make special laws. Congress, the, the, the president isn't the, isn't the commander-in-chief of public relations. Right. But, but, so, what, but I don't understand. <laughs> Sorry. They, me... Like Congress, they get to have... They get to have different rules, but simply because they are the United States so, military. So, could the military come up with some sort of law that if you're black and we find out, but we can discharge you? It would never. First of all, everybody would be able to find out. It's obvious. But, but the uh, the, the secondly, the, they wouldn't. Um, they, it would have to pass Congress. It would have to be yeah. a law, and that's and what a, happened with "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." That yeah. was a compromise. The military banned homosexuality, just like the military bans. Uh, adulterous affairs. You can be thrown out of the military for having question. an affair. Why hasn't that law been overturned? I mean, why hasn't Congress taken a stand? Well, keep in mind that because I mean, it seems. Uh, President keep in mind that don't ask, don't tell is progress. Was progress yeah. was progress over. If you're gay, you're gone, and we can we can investigate. It. We and can look for the the the. And your dishonors, uh, you were dishonorably discharged. Bill, I mean, Bill Clinton seems blatantly like a discrimination. Of course it is. I, I mean, the it's, military it's so continu- obvious that I don't understand how it continues on. Because for 240 years in this country, the military, 200 and however old we are, 230 years, the military operated sort of on the theory that gay people harm the, milita- the cohesion of a military unit. 
Right, but it's not 1942 anymore. I understand, but that said, that has not changed. That belief has not changed. That it is that even if even even if it is discriminatory, what is primary, what's first and foremost in a military unit, mm-hmm. a fighting force, is making sure that everybody works together. And their theory is, you can't have a gay guy because the other guys won't have his back, and he might not have their back after they don't have his back, and then there's trouble. Insert have his back joke here. Yeah, exactly. But but uh, but w- what I you know what Jill, you have to also realize it's it's maddening. But it, as Ben was saying, it's progress too to get to the don't ask, don't tell uh, stage. And it, it, it was stupid progress. It, as it, it was. It, it, was, ended up, it, ended up, it ended up causing perhaps, and in, in, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, more people to be thrown out for being gay under "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" often than the other way around, where they were sort of allowed to investigate. Right, but it's it like also, but, but it mirrors society. It's, no, but it's like me having to sit here in the '60s and they finally put up a separate drinking fountain so black people would have water. Just like, well, that's the, progress. At least they won't go thirsty. You're but, not. You're not. You're not black. <laughs> but it's also you can drink but, the white fountain. But you have but to look at pro- you I, have to look like at progress, progress, Jill. I mean, progress is, is is a weak excuse for not actually getting to the appropriate solution. But where that's wrong. You have equal. nothing happens overnight. J- JFK said in 1960 we're going to go to the moon. He died in 1969. They went to the moon. Uh, Bill Clinton talked about uh, uh, about equality for gays in the military. He talked about health care and, and the uh, com- the compromise that ended up. He didn't want don't ask, don't tell. That was right, what that he could was, get right. out of the military. Military and get out of Congress. As right. it turns out, it's just I'm bad just policy. Tired it makes, of these right. ignorant it makes compromises no sense. that the United States gets stuck on, and then we're embarrassed no, about decades later. It doesn't matter. You can have gay guys in the military because guess what? You already have gay guys in the military. Right. 726 thrown out high. under "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," as Michael read to me during the break uh, just this last year. So it doesn't make any sense. We've always we had gay guys at Omaha Beach. Guess what? They fought the Nazis. really dangerous American fascist wrote the Vice President of the United States in the New York Times in April of 1944. Vice President Henry Wallace. April 9th, 1944. The really dangerous American fascists are not those who are hooked up directly or indirectly with Germany and Japan. The FBI has its finger on those. The dangerous American fascist is the man who wants to do in the United States in an American way. What Hitler did in Germany in a Prussian way, the American fascist would prefer not to use violence. His method is to poison the channels of public information. With a fascist, the problem is never how to best present the truth to the public, but how to best use the news media to deceive the public into giving the fascist and his group more money and more power. 
As Vice President Henry Wallace laid out in his 1944 Time, New York Times article, if we define an American fascist as one who in case of conflict puts money and power ahead of human beings, then there are undoubtedly several million fascists in the United States. There are probably several hundred thousand if we narrow the definition to include only those in their search of money and power who are ruthless and deceitful. They are patriotic in time of war because it is in their interest to be so. And in time of peace, they follow the dollar wherever it may lead. American fascism will not be really dangerous, he added in the next paragraph, until there is a purposeful coalition among the corporate cartelists, the deliberate poisoners of public information. Big business, those in big, those American fascists in big business, wrote Henry Wallace, the vice president of the United States on April of 1944 in the New York Times in an op-ed piece. Those American fascists in big business are willing to jeopardize the structure of American liberty in order to gain some temporary advantage. Monopolists who fear competition and who distrust democracy because it stands for equal opportunity would like to secure their position against small and energetic companies. In an effort to eliminate the possibility of any rival growing up, some monopolists would sacrifice democracy itself. In a comment prescient of George W. Bush's recent suggestion that civilization itself is at risk because of gays, Vice President of the United States Henry Wallace on April 9, 1944, wrote in the New York Times, quote, The symptoms of fascist thinking are cover- colored by environment and adapted to immediate circumstances, but always and everywhere they can be identified by their appeal to prejudice and by the desire to play upon the fears and vanities of different groups in order to gain power. It is no coincidence, wrote the Vice President of the United States in 1944, that the growth of modern tyrants has in every case been heralded by the growth of prejudice. It may be shocking to some people in this country to realize that with me, without meaning to do so, they hold views in common with Hitler when they preach discrimination. He went on to say, the American fascists are most easily recognized by their deliberate perversion of truth and fact. Their propaganda repeated in the newspapers carefully cultivates every fissure of disunity, every crack in the common front against fascism. They use every opportunity to impugn democracy. They claim to be super patriots, wrote the vice president of the United States. But they destroy, they would destroy every liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. They demand free enterprise, but are the spokesmen for monopoly invested interests. Their financial objective toward which all their deceit is directed is to capture political power. So that using the power of the state and the power of the market simultaneously, they may keep the common man in eternal subjection. In response... The president, Franklin Roosevelt, in response to the vice president's article, in part, or at least certainly what Henry Wallace is thinking, Franklin Roosevelt talking about the rise of these modern American fascists. He said, out of this modern civilization, economic royalists have carved new dynasties. It was natural and perhaps human that the privileged princes of these new economic dynasties thirsting for power reached out for control over government itself. They created a new despotism and wrapped it in the robes of legal sanction. And as a result, the average man once more confronts the problem that faced the Minuteman. 
Roosevelt pointed out. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. But, he thundered in that speech, our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of that kind of power. Where are the Democratic leaders when we need them? This was from 1936 to 1944. Franklin Roosevelt, Henry Wallace. No, Reading today that Congress is uh, from the Center for American Progress. I don't want to pretend like I thought of it on my own. I am reading from the from uh, essentially reading a talking point here, but it's an important one. Congress, you should reiterate your thing about talking points. So the reason that you don't oh yeah we don't this. we mentioned at the beginning of the show. I, I just I don't want to fall into the trap of reading talking points because that is clearly what Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, all right. those people do. It's not an accident they talk about the same thing every day. Now, the fact is it's getting easier for Democrats to do that because they're starting to have them. And, right. And they're, they're actually, you know, sort of smartly sending stuff out. Uh, but what we, where we may be wrong is that it works. You know? Oh, no, no. I just and, so, and eventually, if it gets so good at it, you'll just do it. But you'll also, you know, we'll be able to discern what's true and what's not. Right. What's sort of, right. Uh, you know, what's political speak and what's, uh, what is sort of genuine honesty. This is genuine honesty. This is, uh, these, are, these are just facts. Senate Judiciary Committee um, uh, uh, last week on a near party line vote of 11 to 7, we lost one Democrat, um, voted to uh, approve of a constitutional recommend to the full Senate, a, a, a constitutional amendment banning burning the flag, desecration of the flag. But essentially they mean burning. Um, uh, the House has already approved it. Uh, by the two-thirds majority in the House of Representatives. If the Senate goes two-thirds, it is right now uh, has 66 votes. That's one vote shy of passage. It will then go to the states. Two-thirds would have to ratify it in order to amend the Constitution to ban desecrating the flag. If it goes going to the states is not hard. That part, 34 states are going to make that happen. Uh, there are too many. Uh, that, that part is not the difficult part. The mm-hmm. difficult part is the United States Senate, and it's apparently not that difficult because we got 66 senators. Um, that's mainly Republicans, but a handful of uh, Democrats, obviously, if you're getting up to 66. Um, this would be the first time in 214 years that the Bill of Rights uh, has been restricted by a constitutional amendment in any way. We don't generally restrict our rights. The, when we amend the Constitution, we add to our rights. Um, here are the countries that uh, banned, among the countries that banned flag desecration. Cuba, China, Iran, Iraq, under Saddam Hussein, Nazi Germany. Um, I don't, I wouldn't burn the flag, but if my son had hung himself at Guantanamo Bay, and I thought, rightly or wrongly, that he should never have been at Guantanamo Bay, held indefinitely without a hearing and thought that they had no business picking him up. 
I would consider burning a flag <laughs> as a form of protest, which is what it is. It is, uh, your, it is political expression against the United States of America by burning the American flag. We're allowed to express ourselves politically, encouraged even to express ourselves politically. And to prevent it is as un-American as anything I can imagine. I, I really, other than locking people up without letting them see a lawyer <laughs> for indefinite periods of time. No. But I mean, it doesn't mean it, it is irrelevant whether I do it or Joe would do it or Michael would do it or Dave would do it or anybody out there listening would do it. It is totally relevant that there are people who have enough of a gripe against this government that it, it's not hard to foresee an example where it might be legitimate uh, for somebody to take a stand like that. And to criminalize it, to actually have the police of a state or, or, or federal marshals uh, walk up to this guy who burns a flag in protest over some political decision that he disagrees with and put handcuffs on him and take him to prison and then to court and have lawyers and send him to prison for saying, I don't like the government. That's not what we do in this country. And I and the fact that never has there that is a. To, as that is a gutless vote if you vote to amend the United States Constitution to ban flag burning. Uh, that is just uh, I, I can't. I, I don't think I could possibly be persuaded that that was anything other than gutless. But it speaks of our insecurity right now in the United States. I mean that you have any torn of animosity toward yeah. our government or our country, and you want to speak out. I mean that wants to be limited because I, I think they realize what they're doing to the country, and but people yeah. are going to get more angry. But it dates back to this president's father. Uh, yeah, it dates, making it, it. But but it but it but it was not never. It was never this close. So it, I, no, I, it was I mean, never this right, close. It definitely dates back. But Jill is right that it is that it that that it is. Perhaps on the verge of passing. Right. Here. I'm not saying yeah. that anybody's wrong. I, I I just think that this sort of the, the wearing the flag on the sleeve thing is 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 sort of it's old news and it's always been who we're against. In, in, in right. This it's, kind of you're right. It's old news. But man, you, you you think you win the battle. You thought we won it and we didn't have to deal with this nonsense anymore. It but, comes again. But we, yet we I don't think we won it. I think we lost it. And I think we lost a presidency not because of that. I think in 1988 though Michael Dukakis suffered because of that. And I thought it was foolish then. And I thought the people should have ignored it but you're right ben ignoring it now is not is, is going to make it worse because then these things are going to happen and your son whoever that may be uh is, is going to be hanging himself in guantanamo and or or, or i mean it's going to be burning <laughs> never mind never mind well, burning a flag because someone is let's uh, let's go to the phones and hear uh, mark in houston wants to talk to us a little bit about this very subject mark thanks for taking the time to call yeah i think this uh, whole flag burning amendment is just a feel-good um, political, um, autoerotic stimulation, political masturbation kind of thing. Well, I, 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 Mark, I think you're right, except we're going to amend the Constitution. I mean, it's, it's going a little farther than, right. like, than, 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 for example, the constitutional ban on gay marriage, which was just nothing but a political show to divide the country and make us remind us of how much we are capable of hating gay people. This is... We're on the verge. This, will, If the Senate approves it, the states will pass it, and we will amend the Constitution and prevent it. I agree with you, except this is much farther than that. It's a little more than, than masturbation. It's, it's, actual, it, 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 it's actual sex. It may even be rape. Lovers keep their secrets. Baby, I'm not sure if this is love. Love can make us greedy.
another senior moment with Enid Davenport. You, you again? I thought. What? I'm sorry. You again, Andy? Is that it, Andy? Yeah, that that's right, Andy. Enid. You remember my name? Don't patronize me, or is it patronize? You know, I'm I'm pretty sure it's patronize. Don't patronize me. I'm I'm sorry. What what can I do for you, Enid? Well, for one, you can stop patronizing me. Okay, I'll do my best. Where's Billy? I like him. I don't like you. Billy's out today. Uh, why don't Why don't we just talk about the topic of your senior moment? What are you talking about? Your senior moment. That's the name of the segment. Is not. I know, I know, look, I know, you think it's a piece of my mind, but yes. you see, if I called it that, then I would be patronizing you, because the name of the segment is really A Senior Moment with Enid Davenport. I don't like you. I, I don't I, like you. I know. You like Billy. Yes. Yeah, look, why don't you just tell us what's bugging you, okay? What's bugging me? What kind of name is that? No one, no one would listen to a segment with a cornball name like, what's bugging me? It's corny. Cornball, that's what it is. You like cornball, Andy? Is that no, what you like? No, that that's why we call it a senior moment. It it has a double meaning. You're making me dizzy, Andy. Let's just get on with it and talk about this stupid flag burning. Right, the uh, the amendment. Exactly. What's the matter with kids these days burning the American flag? What kind of what kind of fad is that? Fad. Yes, I've never heard of such a thing. When I was a young person, we had wholesome fads, like like swallowing goldfish. No one got hurt, except the goldfish, of course, but they deserved it. You know, I'm not sure it's a fad. Sure it is. You know what a fad is, Andy? Yes, I do. Well, it's time it stops burning the flag. Is that how how the, the young people, how you young people get your kicks? Is that it? You go to a rave, you take some ecstasy and burn American flags. That's, Enid, that's not happening. Well, sure it is. You think I'm stupid? Look, look what's going on in Congress. Lots of young gay people burning flags at their weddings. Uh, wow. Uh, sure. Yes. Thank you. It's time to get a piece of my mind for doing that. That's what I'm saying, burning the flag. Get right. a piece of my mind. Right, right. And taking the ecstasy. Uh-huh. We we didn't do that when I was a kid. You know what we did? You ate goldfish. What are you talking about? I'll tell you one thing we didn't do. Burn the flag. You bet. At least you stopped patronizing me. Or patronizing. I hate that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I like you. You're a nice young man. Thank you. I like those flag burners. Who I'm giving a piece of my mind. Because they deserve it. They deserve a piece of my mind burning the flag like they do, all hopped up on the X, rolling on the E. Is that what you call it, Andy, when you're flying? Yeah, sure. I can read you like a book, can I, Andy? Mm-hmm. Yes, you can, Enid. Well, stop it. Stop burning the American flag, Andy, and, I'll... and then I'll stop giving you a piece of my mind. Thanks. You're quite welcome. This has been a senior moment with Enid Davenport. What are you, what are you talking about? It's a piece of my mind. I don't like you. I want, I want Billy back. Don't like you one bit. There's a shadow in my eyes.
sometimes it's useful to revisit your statement of purpose, your charter. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America in Congress, July 4th, 1776, when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. The history of the present King of Britain the third George to rule. I just added that part. Since we now are on our third George, I mean, what the heck. The history of the present king of Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And here now the bill of attained the, the 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 list of grievances against George the Third. Let's see George Washington, George the First, George Herbert Walker, George the Second, George well, okay. Here's the list. In part. I'm not reading all of them, but most of them. He has refused to assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. Gee, do I remember Denny Hastert uh, holding votes on things like the Patriot Act at 3 o'clock in the morning? He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has plundered our seas, 
ravaged our coasts, burnt our New Orleans towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Yeah, I tossed New Orleans in there. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries employed by Halliburton. No, I just put that in there. To complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions due in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you've been listening to the show for a while, then you probably realize that I generally don't have anything really very substantive to add to the show. However, during some episodes that I have felt uh, were particularly inspiring or encouraging in one way or another, I have felt obligated to not sully the show with, um, you know, silly, useless banter at the end, and and I felt kind of obligated to say something a little bit more um, useful or... uh, you know, fitting or inappropriate for the occasion. However, uh, and, you know, I, I feel the same about this show and, and the way it ended. However, I am falling victim to the same circumstances that befell the caller that immediately followed Tom Hartman's uh, little diatribe there. and uh, and And basically... You know, he he said what just the fact is, good luck following that. And, um, you know, she had a a tough time following that, as as you would uh, expect. And so I will take the same tact that she took and just not even try. You know, you, when, when there's... When, when there's an act that you just can't follow, then just let it go, you know? Mm. So, I will just, uh, I'll just say that, um, you know, thank you for listening. Uh, if you're listening to this when it comes out, then have a good weekend. Otherwise, have a, a good day, night, afternoon. 
morning, work, play, anything along those lines that, that fill in your own truth here. If you're looking for somewhere to waste your time, you can visit the website at thebestoftheleftpodcast.com. Uh, it, it's, it, I've had this feature for a couple of days, um, which, you know, having it for a couple of days puts me about five years behind the curve, but, uh, it's very exciting. And I forgot to tell you before that you can now leave comments on the, the blog of the show notes. So that, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, you were not able to do that before and they updated their program and now I'm taking advantage of it. So if you, that, if you'd like to do that, that's one more way that you can leave me notes and, um, and you know, it it can actually start a a conversation if you'd like, uh, amongst all of you listening. So check that out, uh, post something if you like and see what other people have written and so on and so on. And if you're really bored, then um, pick yourself up one of those pocket constitutions and, and have yourself a good read. It's always, it's always nice to have a reminder of those things, as Tom so well pointed out there. Have a good one, everybody.